The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. I encourage you to turn there in your copy of Scripture. As we read the verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. There we read. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we have been working our way through Hebrews, and this morning we are in this section that explains that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And we have seen in Hebrews chapter 8, the benefits of this new covenant summarized for us. As the writer of Hebrews there quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, explaining this new covenant that Christ has ushered in uh, through his obedient life and his atoning death. Those benefits that we saw are threefold. Uh, The first is that in the new covenant, God puts his law into our minds and into our hearts. The writer of Hebrews explains this as he's quoting Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The promise there that is now fulfilled in the new covenant is that there will be an internal working of the Spirit on all of God's people, an internal working of the Spirit that will bring about regeneration and new life, which will in turn bring about a heartfelt obedience, that God, by His Spirit, not only causes us to believe, but He makes us willing and able to believe and to obey, not perfectly, but in a greater way than was possible under the Old Covenant. Secondly, the Second benefit that we see in Hebrews chapter 8, again, as quoted by the prophet Jeremiah, is that God, in the new covenant, gives us a true knowledge of himself. There we read in verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So now under the new covenant, loved ones, we know that we can understand Christ truly. We can know him truly, not merely by types and shadows, uh, not merely by ceremony, but we can know him personally, fully, clearly as our Lord and our Savior. 
And the third benefit we read there in verse 12 of chapter 8 for, is the forgiveness of sins, where the promise is, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The law that was given under the older covenant, what it did was it revealed our sinfulness. It was powerless to remove sin, but what it did was it effectively revealed how wretched we are, as we confessed this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 2, that the law reveals our sin and our misery. And for Israel, those regular sacrifices that God required of them were continual reminders of their sinfulness and of their need for atonement. They knew that those sacrifices were powerless to remove sin without the ultimate sacrifice that God had promised, the one that was typified in those uh, Old Testament sacrifices, older covenant sacrifices that would come in the fullness of time. And so as we consider these benefits and this forgiveness that has come through Christ, we have to ask the question, why has this forgiveness come? Why are you and I this morning benefits, beneficiaries of this newer covenant? And the answer that we see throughout Hebrews, and especially in our text this morning, is forgiveness has come because the full and final sacrifice that takes away all sin all the sin of God's people has been made in Jesus Christ, that his blood has made atonement for all sin, past, present, and future. And this means, loved ones, that Christ has come to be our mediator. This is what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out. Christ has come to be our mediator. Now, a mediator is one who intervenes between parties that are in conflict, A mediator is someone who tries to bring two sides that are in conflict uh, into agreement to cause them to to get along. Sometimes when, for example, there are uh, disputes among uh, labor management, mediators are brought in to hear both sides and then to make a decision to help bring reconciliation. And in this way, Christ is our mediator between who? Between us and the God, loved ones, that we have offended. This is what the writer of Hebrews explains in our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, where it says, Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ then is our mediator who reconciles us to a holy God, a holy God whom we have offended by our sinfulness. And so the question then, as we see in our text, and our text looks to answer, that I want to ask this morning is why did our covenant mediator have to die? Why did he have to die in order to bring about this reconciliation that we so desperately need The answer we find is explained to us in verses 16 through 22. And I'm going to read these verses for us again so that we familiarize ourselves with this text. Verse 16 through 22 of Hebrews chapter 9. Again, asking the question, why did our covenant mediator have to die in order to bring us this reconciliation? 
There we read, beginning at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So as we look at these verses uh, specifically, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to these verses. So we look at these verses specifically, uh, verses 16 and 17. You notice it can be confusing because it seems like the author is switching between uh, the ideas of covenant and then of a will. And if you look at the verses, I want you to note that the usual interpretation of these verses is to understand them as pointing to the analogy of a last will and testament. And, you know, when we hear the, the word last will, you and I understand how, how that works uh, legally. The owner of a property, for example, with uh, riches and with titles, uh, he can name uh, beneficiaries in his will, but those beneficiaries don't get those benefits until the owner of the property, the riches, uh, dies. And so this example then, when applied to Christ, explains that in order for us, the beneficiaries of an eternal inheritance, in order for us to gain that inheritance, Christ had to die. Now that's one way of, of understanding verse 16 and 17. But I believe that there is a better way to understand uh, these verses and what the inspired author is teaching us this morning about Christ, our covenant mediator, and why Christ had to die. And that is, is as we look at verses 16 and 17, we need to understand that the term for covenant and will in Greek is the same. And so as you're looking at those verses, rather than reading will there, I believe, as do many others, that we should be thinking covenant straight on through this whole passage. That the author, rather than switching between ideas, he maintains the flow by consistently referring to this idea of covenant. So, the question then is, how is he then connecting the ideas of death and covenant in these verses? What's the connection that he's trying to make? Well, loved ones, he's connecting the idea of death to the idea of covenant by referring to that covenant ratification ceremony that threatened death to the one who broke the covenant. And uh, that's a mouthful, right? It's a lot to, to think about. But let me explain to you uh, what I mean by this covenant ratification ceremony. And one of the best examples is what we read this morning from Genesis chapter 15 in our first reading. I encourage you this morning to, as we look at this chapter, uh, please turn there in your Bibles, because we will be walking through this text 
for the next few minutes, looking at what is involved in, in making a covenant uh, in the ancient world. Now, as we look at Genesis 15, we know that the story of Abraham begins not in Genesis 15, but it begins at the end of Genesis chapter 11, where we read there that God graciously came to Abraham, and he made him several promises. The promises are listed in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and those promises include the the fact that God would give Abraham a land. And as we think about this first promise, where God says to Abraham that he will give him a land, we know that we have to understand that this was a promise that would take place in two stages. The land promise that God made to Abraham would ultimately come to pass uh, through Canaan, the land that Israel would inhabit in the Old Testament. But that land promise also had an eternal, uh, some theologians use the word eschatological fulfillment. Right? It was a land promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in the eternal fulfillment in heaven, that land that you and I are journeying toward in this uh, wilderness wandering. And there was also a second promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and that is the promise of a seed, of descendants, of a family. And even this promise had two-stage fulfillment, right? There were two stages to it. It was first fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime, the birth of Isaac. But we know that there was more to it. God not only promised Abraham one son, but he promised him descendants. As numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And loved ones, even Abraham, even Abraham was aware of the two-stage fulfillment of these promises. We read, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, that even Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So even Abraham was able to look past the fulfillment of those temporal promises to the greater eternal fulfillment that would come through God's promise to him. And so Abraham receives these promises of land and of seed. And what was Abraham's response to them? We read that he believed God. He trusted God. And he packed everything up that he had, that he could fit in his caravan. And he left his home. He left the security of everything that he knew. And he started with his family on his journey toward the promised land. And in Genesis 15, then, we pick up with Abraham now in the promised land. He's arrived, but we know that it's not his yet. He he doesn't own it just yet. And not only that, but he also doesn't yet have children. The promises have not yet come to pass. The land is not his. He's still childless. And Abraham, at this point... In Genesis 15, his name's still Abram. He's having a little trouble with God's seeming slowness in fulfilling the promises that he received. We read about Abraham's struggle in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. We read there, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. We see Abraham's trouble with the seeming slowness of God's fulfillment of the promises. And so what we see in reply is that God, being very patient with Abraham, as God is so very patient with each and every one of us, he repeats his promises to Abraham there in verses 4 through 7. We read, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Again, the promises are reiterated. You will have a son. You will have a land that you will possess. But what we see in verse 8 is that even after hearing God's promises restated to him, Abraham dares to ask God that very important question, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How, Lord, can I know for sure that these things will come to pass, that I will have an heir, a son, that I will have a land, just as you said, how might these things be guaranteed? And the way that God guarantees his promise, his promises, is through a ceremony, a ceremony, loved ones, that I'm sure in the reading of it this morning, you thought, and as I did, very strange, pretty weird, especially to our modern ears. As we see in this ceremony, what God first tells Abraham is that he is to take a calf, a goat, and a ram, and cut them in half. And the two halves are then laid out with a walkway between them. We read in verses 9 through 11, the instructions. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now all this, again, might seem very strange to us, but we need to understand that this was all common stuff for Abraham. Abraham knew exactly what God was commanding him to do. This was a common practice, in fact, in Abraham's day for kings to make covenants, to make agreements with one another. Um, let's say, for example, that in the ancient world, a powerful king conquered the territory of a lesser king, and the conquering king wanted to establish new conditions for how the relationship would continue now between this lesser king and this greater king. 
know, who conquered this territory. And what would happen is that the conquering king, the more powerful sovereign, would have some animals sacrificed and cut in two, just as we read here in Genesis 15. And then he would explain the conditions of the new relationship that he has now with this lesser conquered king. The conditions would be things like, uh, you will pay me uh, such and such amount of taxes. Uh, You will provide this many servants for my lands. You will provide this many soldiers uh, for my army. Uh, Conditions were listed. And and then part of uh, those conditions involved uh, what we might call sanctions. There were... uh, the king would promise to fulfill his end of the bargain in a sense by saying, if you keep all these conditions, I will do things like protect you. Uh, I won't enslave your people and so on. And so there were conditions to the covenant with blessings for keeping the covenant, but there were also curses uh, or penalties for not keeping the conditions of the covenant And this is where, as we see in Genesis 15 and in the example, this is where those severed animals, those bloody carcasses uh, fit in. Because what would happen is the weaker king, the one who had just been conquered, would walk between the severed animals as a way of promising to keep the conditions of the covenant. And by walking through those severed animals, he was, in essence, uh, saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break the covenant, if I don't keep all of those conditions perfectly. As Pastor uh, John T. Rhodes, as a pastor in Britain, explains it, the lesser king was symbolically saying that if he broke the deal, he would suffer the same fate as the animals death at the hands of the more powerful conquering king. It was, in essence, a grisly reminder of the seriousness of needing to keep the covenant, of needing to keep those conditions. So, loved ones, with that as background, we come back to Abraham. Abraham, as on that night, he is laying out those dead animals, just as God commanded him. And knowing now what we know about covenants, what do you think Abraham expected God to command him? You know, what he probably expected God to command him was to have him walk through those pieces, to have Abraham be the one who establishes the covenant based on his own life. But we see in Genesis 15, loved ones, is a great surprise, is it not? We read that he puts Abraham instead into a deep sleep. And what follows is something that Abraham will be completely uh, passive to. God will do all the work. We see in verses 12 through 16, God explains that Abraham's descendants will not yet take possession of the land. In fact, it will be 400 years until they do so. And in that time, they'll be enslaved to a greater nation. But God will bring judgment on that nation, a nation which we know will be Egypt. And then he will, after 400 years, bring his people into the land that he promised. 
But loved ones, what about the conditions of the covenant? How was Abraham, there he is sleeping, how was Abraham going to walk through the pieces of the animals if he was asleep? How would he ratify that covenant? Who would promise to keep the conditions of the covenant? That's the surprise we read in verses 17 through 18. Genesis 15, we read, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Loved ones, what we see is this smoking firepot that is pictured here is God himself. God himself is walking through those severed animals. It's God, the greatest king, not Abraham, who promises to keep the covenant and who does so on his very life. See, through this ceremony, God is in essence saying, I will take on myself the conditions for fulfilling my covenant with you. And if they are broken, I will take the punishment for them. That I, God Almighty, Lord of hosts, I will be torn in two. I will undergo death if this covenant is not kept. Loved ones, in a sense, God signs this in his own blood. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is drawing upon, this rich history, this rich background. He is connecting death with this covenant ratification ceremony, this example that we see in Genesis 15. In fact, if we go back now to our passage in Hebrews chapter 9, and look there at verse 17, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 17, we see that this verse literally reads, it's a, it's a wooden translation of, of the verse, so it's understandable that the translators don't put this into our modern translations. But the verse literally reads, a covenant is confirmed over dead bodies. See, when we read that, we immediately have to think of Genesis 15. And those animals that were cut in half when God confirmed his gracious covenant with Abraham. And to add to this explanation and example, the inspired author in the following verses in Hebrews chapter 9 refers us to another similar covenant ceremony, one that takes place in Exodus chapter 24. This is the chapter of the Bible that describes the confirmation of the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. And we see that even this covenant in Exodus chapter 24 is made in blood, is made over dead bodies. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Again, think of the vivid imagery as another covenant is sealed in blood. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And he sent young, young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Even in this covenant, loved ones, we see that the blood that is sprinkled symbolizes the death that will come upon the party that fails to keep the conditions of the covenant. Even this covenant is made firm over dead things. It is constituted, it's inaugurated, it's put into force over sacrificial animals that symbolize that the covenant maker, the one who brings upon himself the covenant curses, is in essence saying, may I not live if I fail to keep my covenant. May my own blood be spilled if I fail. And again, this might all seem very strange to us, very foreign to us talk of blood and of dead animals. Uh, you know, in our modern day, uh, we don't deal uh, with many bloody things, right? You go to the grocery store, uh, the meat that we buy is, is cleaned, it's washed, it's cut into nice pieces, it's shrink-wrapped, it's all very easy to handle. Uh, it's even pre-cooked, right? We, we never have to see things like that, like Israel did on a daily basis. Basis. And even this idea of making covenants might seem strange to us. But loved ones, if we think about it, we still make covenants, even though we don't use these kinds of ceremonies. There is no blood involved in the covenants that we make today. There's no dead animals. But there are modern parallels if we think about it. Uh, consider, for example, when you're buying a car and you're taking out a loan for it, right? and uh, you're sitting there in the dealer's office about to make the deal, and he takes out all that paperwork that you have to sign. Uh, I've heard that in signing a mortgage, the paperwork is even is, is like a mountain of paperwork, right? Uh, all of it, all that paperwork contains terms and conditions of the contract. So in buying the car, that example, that paperwork states that the dealer has requirements that they must fulfill, as do, does the car manufacturer. Requirements like the fact that the car will run without problems for a time, and that the car hasn't been an accident, it's a clean title. All of that is part of their, uh, their requirements in keeping the contract. But there are also requirements or conditions for you, the buyer. And the conditions are that you'll make those monthly payments. And then by signing the paperwork, you're saying that I understand by signing this paperwork that bad things will happen to me if I don't keep the conditions of this contract, this deal. Bad things might include things like the car will be repossessed, uh, my credit will get ruined, uh, things like that. So, loved ones, you see, there's no blood involved, and thank God for that. Good thing the dealer doesn't you know, take out an animal and slice it and say, let's make, let's make a contract. Much easier just to sign. But 
In essence, those conditions are there. The requirements are there. Even though, as we said, it doesn't look like the covenants made in the older covenant, the essence of them is present. And so how does then all of this connect to Christ? As we see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, the author explains it for us. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then we connect this with verse 22. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, the author of Hebrews is pointing out that the conditions of the first covenant were not kept, that we have all sinned, and that we all fall short of the glory of God. And because we have not kept the conditions of the covenant, blood must be shed as a penalty. That was part of the covenant made. And the surprise of the gospel, loved ones, the surprise of the gospel is that it's not our blood that is shed for the remission of sins, but the grace of the gospel to those who believe is that though we have broken our covenant with God, God himself has taken on the penalties of the covenant. That what he promised to Abraham is what he fulfilled centuries later in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his son who bore the penalties for our sins on the cross, whose blood was shed, who was torn for us. At the Last Supper, what we might call the first Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus used these covenant words to explain his coming death. We read in Matthew chapter 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Loved ones, do you hear the promise? The first there being of forgiveness of sins, of adoption, that we are Abraham's children. We see the promise fulfilled, the forgiveness of sins is present there, the forgiveness that will come about by Christ shedding his blood for us. But also, do you see in Christ's words the land promise, the eternal inheritance? Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. When? Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, in that promised land, in that heavenly Jerusalem. Loved ones, all people are in covenant with God. There is no opting out of being in covenant with God. You're either in covenant with him to receive curses or you're in covenant with him to receive the blessings because Christ bore those curses for you. 
The good news of the gospel is that we have a mediator, the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it's by faith in him that his blood has atoned for every race and it sprinkles now the throne of grace.